0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. I'm joined today by three authors of a recent bioscience viewpoint, and it's entitled Pandemic Policy in the Vaccine Era, the Long Haul Approach. The authors are Dr. Charlie Fenster, who is a professor at South Dakota State University and director of the Oak Lake Field Station, and he's also president of AIBS. Uh, Dr. Pam Soltis, who's with the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida, and she's also director of the University of Florida Biodiversity. Institute is a member of the AIBS board and is past president of the American Society of Plant Taxonomists. And I'm joined by Dr. Paul Turner, who's the Rachel Carson Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University and microbiology faculty member of Yale School of Medicine. We covered a lot of ground in this interview, but I think what's really at the heart of the conversation is carefully examining the ways that many fields of science can be applied to put us on a better bearing for dealing with dangerous pathogens in the future. And I think that can range from things like, you know, better understanding the evolutionary process Processes that cause vaccine resistance to, you know, building the biodiversity infrastructure that lets us learn quickly about, you know, animal host populations when diseases jump over to people. Um, and then, you know, kind of also learning how all of these things can be affected by broader trends. So things like climate change. Um, I'll let our guests explain further, but just for the purposes of identifying voices, the first guest that you'll hear respond to a question is Dr. Turner. Let's go to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Great, great, to, great be to, to
1: be here. Yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure to be part of
0: this. Okay, so let's jump right in. You know, I think um, at this stage of the pandemic, one of the major stories that we're hearing a lot about, um, and one of the major sources of anxiety, even though you know we have um, very effective vaccines on the market right now, is this concept of variants and you know um, new versions of the virus that may present problems and potentially in the future for vaccines. Uh, and let's talk about that a little bit through the lens of evolution. So you know variants themselves are in fact a result of an evolving virus and I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yes so viruses like other biological populations generate diversity and this just happens naturally through changes in uh, mutations so spontaneous changes as they replicate within cells so the expectation is that some viruses build up lots of this variation over time or very little depending on their genetic systems. But the kinds of observations that we see now with the current pandemic and uh, these variants that are popping up around the world are completely expected. This is what happens, especially if a virus is in a new environment where some of these variants might be of greater fitness than other variants. So this is exactly what we' were observing
0: so this is a case in which, you know if if a virus happened to uh, undergo a mutation that caused it to uh, you know be more easily transmissible, you would expect that trait to be selected for, and you'd expect to see more of that variant?
2: Uh, yes. If you just consider the, uh, the base understanding of evolution by natural selection, uh, the opportunity exists that if you have variants that are going to be advantaged in some way, then they gain a fitness advantage over other variants in a biological population. A big deal for viruses is reaching the next host. So if there's a possibility for variants to get an edge in fitness through being greater uh having greater transmission ability then that's what one could observe and that's exactly what we're seeing
0: okay and what are the implications for this you know in terms of vaccination you know uh are we are we in a situation which we're you know uh, doomed that the next you know variation in the in a virus is going to render all of our vaccines useless you know kind of what's the what's the dynamic of that like in general
1: that's a really good uh question whether uh viruses will evolve increased transmissibility, and whether they'll evolve increased virulence, for example, Uh, that is the outcome of the virus for the human host, uh, in terms of uh, illness, progression, um, or even uh, mortality. And, uh, you know, these questions have have been studied um, in the realm of um, evolutionary biology uh, for a number of, of, of decades and uh, we know that sometimes the evolution of, of transmissibility um, is associated with the increase of, of, of virulence, uh, but not, not always. And I, I think uh, that's where our uh, ecologist colleagues can provide uh, a lot of uh, background and information uh, because it really depends upon the ecology of the organism, in this case the ecology of the virus, and how it interacts with the host, uh, whether there'll be um, strong selection for uh, uh, virulence or, or transmissibility. So we, we know um, that the virus can be transmitted by uh, human hosts that are asymptomatic, for example, uh, and if that's the case then uh, the evolution of virulence uh, does not necessarily have to go hand in hand or step or, by uh, or, or step with, step, uh, with the uh, evolution of transmissibility. So al- oftentimes the evolution of increased transmissibility is associated with increased virulence because there's strong uh, selection for the virus to replicate uh, very quickly and um, be represented uh, in the next generation <clears throat> of viruses that are spreading between hosts. Um, uh, let me
2: just add a little bit, Uh, ecology matters in virology even though if you ask the average virologist they may not say that and the reason is that ecological interactions are truly interactions between entities and viruses have to interact with something otherwise they won't replicate so I've always reminded colleagues in virology that all virologists necessarily should be thinking about ecology and the current pandemic really highlights this in many many ways but I uh, you know, I, I very much agree with statements that yes what we know from theory and experiments and observations in infectious disease systems is that transmission of a pathogen could scale with increased virulence and they could increase together in lockstep but that's not necessarily the case there's lots of strategies that parasites and pathogens take in order to be more transmissible. I mean, one possibility is that within the host, it's not all about making more particles, but it might be outcompeting other variants. And that's not necessarily by you know running the race to make more progeny. There could be ways that interfering or competing directly with another variant is going to gain a fitness advantage. So a uh, one way for me to summarize that, I don't I hope that wasn't too jargony, is that If you've got variants that are vying with one another through competition, it is not always that those that out-reproduce the other variants are the ones that are going to get an advantage. So the last thing I want to say about this is that the evolution of virulence literature is indeed rich. But one of the main cautionary tales is like many things in biology, we look for general rules. And virulence, you know, we would like to have general rules about virulence, but I think what we've learned is that you have to honor the specific host pathogen and host parasite interactions and use that ecology to predict what virulence will do next in terms of evolution so it's wonderful to have general rules we don't lack excuse me we don't have very many of them in biology and that's why we have plenty of physics envy but the point is uh, we need to be very careful in studying the new variants and indeed their increased transmissibility but there is the possibility that they could lead to greater virulence, lesser virulence, or unchanged virulence in terms of the original pandemic strain.
0: Okay, and it sounds like we're winding our way toward a a little bit of a discussion about um, natural history collections and their role in this. So Pam, why don't you uh, get us started on that?
3: So I think one of the things that's interesting here when we think about um, viral evolution or pathogen evolution is that we know that the viruses or other pathogens um, evolve um, very quickly, and um, yet we also know that they've been doing so over really long periods of time in really large geographic areas, and so um, when we think about natural hosts for any of these human um, pathogens, um, we can also think about what their natural hosts um, are and where those natural hosts might be distributed and what sorts of variants are out there in nature. And this brings us to um, some other aspects of evolutionary biology that involve the use of natural history collections. And although certain types of pathogens, um, like certain types of viruses, are not well preserved over long periods of time in preserved specimens such as bats. Other sorts of pathogens can be preserved for long periods of time, and we can actually go into these collections, natural history collections like the Smithsonian or many of our large university collections, and actually obtain um, um, examples of uh, variants of various um, pathogens, um, viruses, bacteria, etc., that occur. Um, from around the world. So, currently, for example, there are people studying bat specimens and um, derivations of bat specimens from various places in Southeast Asia as well as other um, parts of the world to understand more about naturally occurring variants of coronaviruses so that we can maybe understand more about um, viral evolution from them and then apply that to our understanding of, of what might be happening in um, disease ecology and disease virulence.
1: yeah I'd, and I'd like to add that before this uh, article uh, or viewpoint was uh, was written uh, you know we were struck by the uh, use of the term uh, evolution uh, in the uh, popular media and uh f- you know for the first time other than uh, associated with the controversy of teaching evolution uh, at the K-12 level, uh, there, was, there seemed to be an interest in the evolution of organisms uh, that would have obviously a consequence for, for, for human health. And um, also,, you know, many of the epidemiologists uh, that were reporting uh, back to the media. It turned out that you know, many are associated directly with ecology or, and evolution uh, departments, or they had uh, their PhD training um, as uh, evolutionary biologists and ecologists. And so we, um, we thought that it would make sense then to give a, a, a perspective from the evolution and uh, ecology disciplines. And, and, s- and you really can't separate them because evolution uh, happens on the uh, stage, ecological stage, and also bring attention to the, the role of biodiversity scientists in uh, helping us uh, navigate uh, the past and, and future in terms of, of uh, outbreaks of, of new human pathogens.
2: So the pandemic is definitely a stark reminder that biodiversity uh, matters on this planet and humans have long appreciated biodiversity in the organisms around us. Uh, Viruses are hard to see so this kind of invisible biodiversity has not been a long-standing appreciation in humans but we certainly appreciate it now. Uh, What the pandemic reminds us is that we you know it is informative to know interactions that are happening ecologically in other systems because they can directly impact humans or other organisms that we care very much about. I mean one thing to remind the audience is that let's say agricultural systems are also vulnerable to lots of epidemics and even pandemics. So that could be something that we'll face increasingly in the future and that's got obvious ramifications for food security, especially in places where uh, already food security is a very big deal. So this is uh, you know, we have to be better prepared not only to protect ourselves but also the organisms on which we increasingly, increasingly rely and there are very, very many of them on this planet. So uh, that's just a reminder that many different biological systems uh, are going to be impacted in the future by disease spread and some of those could directly or indirectly impact human lives.
3: Um, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing increased um, spillover events um, over recent decades is that we are increasingly encroaching on natural habitats and natural environments and uh, coming into closer contact as as humans with, um, with animals that are bearing um, viruses and other pathogens that we didn't come into contact with before and the same thing is true for our agricultural products and so um, we are um, increasingly encroaching on nature, and these are some of the out- outcomes that that we're seeing. And coupled with climate change, as organisms are responding by moving if they're able, um, we c- we can envision that and hypothesize that there will be more of these sorts of contacts um, coming up in the future that uh, w- we need to be prepared for.
1: Yeah, and I would add. In addition, there's been the increase increasing uh, global transport of these diseases um, as associated with both uh, greater human movement uh, between countries and also uh, introduction of the pathogens um, you know through. Uh, importation of foods or uh, through accidents.
0: And I should mention at this point that I'm getting the sense that you're reading my question list off my glasses because that was just what I was about to ask about. Is this you know, spillover happening more frequently? Because you know I can only speak from my you know subjective experience, which is that it, it seems like there are far more frequent, frightening events. You know in which humans are confronted with diseases like Zika or you know chicken or obviously um, you know SARS-CoV-2. Is this happening more often, or is that a misperception on my part?
2: Um, I I guess in my opinion it is happening more often but it's understandably so. I mean you've got a very large uh, biological population in humans and an easier possibility for those individuals to move around the globe. So this is basic I think fundamental epidemiology that if you've got a host that could be vulnerable then the probability of it being increasingly vulnerable is going to scale with those factors that I mentioned. Now um, something particularly intriguing when you consider epidemics or pandemics is, what is the timing of us actually knowing it's happening? So you hear about it in the news, understandably, very acute problems, Ebola virus outbreak, the current pandemic, but the estimates, for example, for HIV. And when did sort of non-human primates that were infected with viruses related to HIV, these are abbreviated as SIV, simian immunodeficiency viruses. When did those actually enter the human population? Because it was in the 1980s and 90s when this uh, epidemic of HIV AIDS really took off. And the estimates are that it was probably as long ago as the 1930s and 40s. So my point is that nowadays there could be increasingly those types of very slow burn uh, infectious epidemic and even looming pandemic threats and unfortunately we don't know it until it expands, until it's so noticeable. So this is really, you know, we have to look out for the acute possibilities and the things that flare up very quickly, but uh, a reminder is that there's very many people around this world who die mysterious deaths and it's not quite certain what is going on and then we later find out that it's actually due to some infectious agent that is common across that mortality and we just haven't been able to piece it together through a detective story.
0: Okay, so I I think we've got a a very good background of, you know, kind of the phenomena that are occurring here, but I I wanted to talk about, um, the article focuses a lot on what we should do Uh, in order to kind of, you know, avert the next pandemic or if not avert, alleviate um, or even the sorts of approaches that we should be taking now, um, you know, in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, I was hoping we could kind of, you know, talk through a few of those. You know, one you mentioned is, uh, you know, Better conservation, reducing the opportunities for spillover, um, is that something that you know is you know economically feasible? I know it's expensive, but it's pretty almost trivial in comparison to the cost of uh, you know the pandemic, and which is obviously in the tens of trillions of dollars.
1: Yeah. So uh, one re- one study that was recently published estimated that uh, um, that the you know the cost of adequate conservation uh, is like. Uh, 2% of, of the economic cost of, of the pandemic. You know, uh, unfortunately it's it's very hard for the public to you know spend money for to prevent something that might happen in the future. But I think what we're seeing is that we're shifting from a, a might to it will happen. Something bad will happen in the future and the uh, it um uh, it behooves us uh, to uh, prevent this these outbreaks from occurring um, by all, all means possible and one is through conservation as well as restoration of natural systems and there's of course many other uh, positive attributes associated with uh, the uh, conservation of natural systems uh, and this is based on uh, the notion of ecosystem services, you know, what aspects of human prosperity and health um, uh, benefit from uh, natural ecosystems. And, and, and uh, for the general audience, a great way of thinking about this is thinking about an apartment that looks out on, uh, on Central Park uh, versus an apartment in the same building uh, that's around the corner and looks out on another building. Uh, you know the the property value uh, of a apartment looking out on Central Park is going to be much higher um, uh, because there's um, humans appreciate it at some level uh, and appreciated in terms of economics uh, the value of of scenery uh, of, of forests and open lands and and um, and free flowing water and so forth uh, and uh, you know that's only one of many many aspects uh, that ecosystems uh, um, provide services to humans others would be you know uh, clean water uh, or uh, the health uh, uh, pollinators which in turn provide uh, important services uh, in terms of crop yield and, and so forth and the, the list just keeps going on and on
3: I think accompanying the, um, the idea of improved conservation and restoration is um, a, an important emphasis on education as well, and um, education for um, very broad audiences, and it really needs to be global. If, if everyone could understand these concepts of ecosystem services, the way that Charlie just described them, I think we would um, be in a much better position to have have people support conservation actions. And so, um, I think we um, this is an area maybe where uh, we as as educators have not made as much progress as as we could have, and we really need to be thinking more about um, public education and public appreciation and awareness for all of the things that healthy ecosystems provide um, you know not least of which is a reduced chance of um, disease and pandemics in the future.
2: Yeah I I very much agree the uh, the pandemic is reminding us that um, biodiversity well I guess some of the statements that Charlie and Pam made they're reminding me that biodiversity and open spaces seem to matter to people. But it's a little hard to figure out why. And uh, my own opinion is that it's got some psychological value. You know, we've long standing appreciation of this just as humans on this planet, seeing biodiverse systems around us. So we've kind of evolved in the presence of that. And indeed, if we don't know the exact neurological reasons for it. You know, you take somebody to an open space and it it's, tends to have kind of a calming influence. Of course, it depends on the person. What I'm getting at is that, you know, we do need to preserve these spaces and honor uh, wild systems, conservation biology, ecosystem services. It's just becoming increasingly apparent. And the pandemic is reminding us, you know, can, you, can we just learn to or grow to leave those places alone? because they aren't necessarily potentially impactful for the spread of new diseases into humans and this is called zoonotic events where you have the movement of pathogens from animals into humans so the necessarily this is going to have a lower probability of occurring if we don't encroach as much on the wild spaces from a surveillance standpoint that's where it gets tricky and what I want to say is that if you leave wild places alone if you can we're never really going to have the kind of resources to do the surveillance of the looming pathogens in those places anyway. I think there's a lot of interest in this after uh, the pandemic and dealing with it, but it doesn't mean that we'll have the affordability to do those studies. Whereas in agricultural systems, especially animal agriculture, you know, we can increasingly do the surveillance there because we have easy access to the animals and frankly they're not as genotypically diverse and in other ways that just help us to figure out what's happening there and the risk of pathogens moving from agricultural animals into humans but the wild populations very difficult to get a handle on this and maybe we have to think of it in spatial ways is leaving those places alone if at all possible and just kind of trying to move forward in that direction
1: yeah and I'd like to add on what Pam uh, said about uh, education, and there are parts of the world where where biodiversity uh, is considered within the context of a, a certain amount of, of of nationalism, but in a good way, it's it's in recognition that um, what you have at home is is good. So everybody. Kind of has an affinity for for where they grow up. So, as much as baseball and apple pie can be part of the culture, is part of the culture of the United States. Uh, so can our the recognition of uh, species that are native to North America uh, be recognized as as part of our culture? You know, you ask a, a New Yorker about bagels and, or delicatessens or the uh, uh, or or their scenery on their local uh, street and the same can apply to people living in other regions uh, of the United States that they love the ponderosa pines or the giant uh, redwoods or they enjoy seeing um, you know trout on the rise uh, in a beautiful stream in, in Montana and this can be part of our and should be part of our natural, national and, and, and cultural identity. And if so, then there is a, a much more of a natural inclination uh, to protect uh, what you think is an important part of, of your culture.
0: Okay, great. So I think that covers, you know, a lot of the, you know, the areas of science that, you know, may be brought to bear on um, this pandemic, the next pandemic, or, you know, f- you know future similar situations. Um, you also called for better understanding of the way that social features can promote or inhibit behaviors that will reduce disease spread. And I, and I thought that was interesting because you know, one, one of the things that you know, we often talk about on this show is, you know, um, scientific communication and outreach and education and, you know, where we fall short. And I think in in many senses, you know, the pandemic is uh, an exemplar of of a place where we did fall short um, insofar as, you know, the the communication uh, may have been, you know, correct scientifically, but it wasn't necessarily effective. How should we study that kind of thing? You know, what should we be looking for, um, you know, in terms of uh, improving our outreach and communication?
2: Um, Some of what we mentioned in the article uh, relates to your question in terms of the the common good. And the the thing that uh, has surprised me and many others is the unwillingness of people to do things that are considered small behaviors that could be positively impactful, like wearing a mask. And uh, now some of this gets politicized, yes, but... I'm going to step back from that and just say what is just an understanding educationally in humans about how your actions impact others and are there times at which you need to reflect on this and think about well you know if I can change my behavior in some small way it could be a net good and I do not know, you know where, where does that failing come from is that kind of a lack of an educational understanding or a lack of uh, Uh, influence in education to teach people about how you don't live in isolation. Nothing on this planet is in isolation including human behavior and its impacts on other humans and uh, it's just kind of a human thing unfortunately to act most when things are at your doorstep and in a pandemic that could occur but by that time things are out of control so that's kind of what we saw is that as things kind of really spiraled into I have no choice but to do this behavior then some people started to change their actions my main point is that I I feel like one way is to dig in and do that modeling and kinda have it come into an intersection with social science and social interactions and just kinda get a handle on not only epidemiological biological spread but also how this layers into ordinary and extreme behaviors and you know how can we how can we predict or how can we even explain more of the dynamics that we've observed at those sorts of levels
1: yeah I just I just want thank you Paul and I want to interject that um, with increasing population size increasing um, uh, alteration of the natural landscape through agriculture and urbanization all of Paul's points are emphasized. We, each of us has much more impact on all of us uh, nowadays. And I, um, n- none of us on this panel uh, right now are, are social scientists. And I think that the questions you've raised, James, are, uh, require uh, collaborations with uh, social scientists economists uh, along with biologists to understand uh, what are the uh, if not the sources of human behavior uh, perhaps the correlates of different types of human behaviors to um, act for the common good or act for the common good in the future Uh, so you know whether this has to do with one's um, behaviors uh, in terms of agricultural practices uh, more sustainable versus less sustainable practices or uh, in terms of one's um, consumption habits uh, as well as one's perspectives on on nature uh, you know these are would be very interesting to investigate how they're interrelated and um and then if they are, we can begin to ask questions about you know what should um, what could we do. Um, in terms of education, so people can make more uh, conscious choices <laughs> about, you know, the outcome of whether they want to consume more or less, or the agricultural practices, um, whether they, uh, whether, I don't know, uh, current yield is more important than perhaps yield uh, for uh, future generations that will be farming the land in the um, some distance hence.
3: I would just really like to echo the um, importance of this idea of involving social scientists in understanding our behavior, um, our, our collective behavior, our individual behaviors, um, all related to the pandemic in particular, but then in a, a larger context about how we um, appreciate or don't appreciate um, biodiversity, climate change, and all of these other factors that actually really bear um, very much on our own health and well being. And fortunately, I think we are starting to see uh, more so- social scientists and economists um, interested in these issues of behavior uh, with regard to nature and um, the economics associated with the environment and uh, hopefully that's all you know those are really good signs for the future so that we can gain a better understanding of what we should be doing to um, educate you know the next our next generations um, into the future.
2: Yeah, I just want to quickly add that so much of what has been revealed with health disparities um, the vulnerability of certain age groups comorbidities and just how this layers into demographics in the US and other places I mean this is a huge wake-up call that we need more interdisciplinary studies that bridge between sciences social sciences and into the humanities and I uh, as you know scientists have witnessed an expansion of interdisciplinary studies within the sciences and you know, the pandemic is also a reminder of that. We had to rally from very many different disciplines to get together and quickly act to fully understand this new biological threat and how we are going to deal with it. And now all of these other social science and societal related issues have come to the front. So we have to move forward as a national agenda and international agenda to better prepare ourselves for the future by understanding all these intersections because these are there and they're only be going, going to become more complex and interwoven. So we, we should be doing this. And it's a wake-up call that we should have been doing it for a while. And, uh, you know, now it's an imperative to do so.
0: Okay, great. So if I wanted to formulate a single takeaway, um, I, I might suggest something like it's going to take... Uh, Every field. It's going to take you know natural history collections. It's going to require greater social justice. It's going to require psychology, economics. It's going to require you know conservation biology, of course, you know virology, um, and and all of the many other fields that, you know that I'm forgetting at the moment. Um, if we're actually going to be able to address these, because all of those things come to bear on a topic like this one, and um, you know only by incorporating all of those things. Um, will we be able to, you know, kind of mount a good defense uh, either to the continuation of the, you know, the present situation um, with COVID-19 or, you know, um, one hopes not, the next pandemic?
1: Yeah, I, I just, you're absolutely right, James. And, you know, the way I, I've kind of thought about this is, um, you know, early on when I got introduced to biodiversity sciences, you know, maybe I was um, introduced to, uh, to successional gradients um, for succession or, or dunal succession. And, you know, the idea is to understand what forces uh, lead to uh, the next stage of succession and so forth. But here, what we're, we're talking about, humans are really the causal agents of, of everything we've discussed. Uh, the alteration of the landscape and uh, the consequences thereof. And so it's really important then uh, to understand the uh, drivers of, of human behavior, because if you understand that, then you can understand uh, really the mechanism for why the landscape is being altered in a, in a manner that mostly it leads to uh, reduced human prosperity and, and health.
0: Great. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to leave the conversation. Um, Thank you all very much for joining me today.
1: Thank Thank you. Thanks
3: a lot.
0: And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.